This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. True men are neither macho nor wimps, but those who use God's weapons to defend their families, churches, and communities. This episode of the Return to Order Moment looks at a modern-day controversy that should be no controversy at all. For centuries, Western culture accepted masculinity and femininity without question. Such is the nature of humanity that most other cultures accept it as well. However, the leftist deconstruction of society has proceeded so far that it questions the basic building blocks of civilization. We have reached the time that we must call halt before going any farther down the road to ruin. A new book by Senator Josh Hawley might possibly signal that much-needed act. In this essay, Manhood, a Catholic Look at a Much-Needed Commentary, Mr. John Horvat examines that book. Plenty of men live their lives avoiding responsibility, work, and effort. Many have no idea of the purpose of their lives or where they want to go. Others recoil before a culture that interprets any movement to male character development or leadership as hateful and oppressive. All these masculine figures are missing one vital ingredient, manhood. They need it urgently. Manhood is more than just having the right chromosomes. Senator Josh Hawley, Republican, Missouri, outlines what it entails in his new book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. Reading this book solicits a sigh of relief that finally someone says what needs to be said. Manhood is good, needed, and achievable. Senator Hawley's book mixes several styles to make his point. It is part memoir with tales of how his family members and ancestors lived their manhood. It is part Bible study, interweaving scriptural stories, lessons, and passages that indicate the God-given purpose of manhood. Finally, it is a social commentary on postmodernity's desire to annihilate manhood and what needs to be done to recover it. From the Catholic perspective, there is much to like in his presentation and much to add. A Catholic can agree that men embracing the calling of being husbands and fathers. Missouri's senior senator sustains that every man must assume the duties that make him at once warrior, builder, priest, and king, as he accepts the mission of Adam to expand and protect the Lord's garden. He insists that commitment and courage are non-negotiable starting points. Such observations form a foundation for manhood. However, the immensity of the manhood crisis seems to call for something more. This is not to say the book is wrong. It just falls short. Written from a Protestant perspective, 
The author limits himself to evoking archetypes of strong Christian character and natural virtue in a supportive Christian culture that no longer exists for many men. He presents excellent models of ordinary and honest virtues, at times that call for extraordinary and uncommon valor. His very personal appeal to manly self-discipline is directed toward generations, weakened by a culture of gratification. His proposal contains no organized counterculture to face an overwhelmingly hostile and organized culture. Thus, an added Catholic perspective is crucial to address those shortcomings and build upon the Senator's foundation. Calling upon the Church would allow men to access more spiritual aspects and resources to fight the enemy. It would provide more insights into the workings of the soul as men confront an adversarial world. The Church's universal nature would give men the camaraderie and unity needed to put together a counter-revolution. It can draw from masculine archetypes for extraordinary times, often found in the Church's saints, clergy, and heroes throughout history. True Catholic manhood offers something more, the noble ideal that will make all the difference. One game-changer is the Catholic notion of grace in this counter-revolution. The present manhood crisis will not only be solved by self-discipline, but through transformations wrought by God's grace. The author would acknowledge this. However, he does not express grace in the traditional terms of the created participation in the uncreated life of God, which acts inside individuals and peoples. When grace works inside souls, it enlightens the intellect, strengthens the will, and tempers the senses. Grace allows men to do things that are beyond the reach of human nature and touch on heroism and the sublime. Senator Hawley's understanding of grace is like the so-called night of fire, described by the French philosopher and Jansenist Blaise Pascal, 1623-1662, who held that the experience of God is through the heart rather than reason. Such subjective happenings are limited to intense personal experiences. They are often short-lived and do not have the stability or dynamism needed to cause great social transformations. The great conversions in history have always been the fruits of overwhelming, then sustained grace. This presupposes a sacramental life whereby the soul receives sanctifying grace to remain in a habitual state of friendship with God. It calls for a liturgical life, from which men can draw upon the power of the Eucharist. This state of grace opens up an enormous range of possibilities for action and sanctification found in the cardinal virtues, the supernatural virtues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and other spiritual benefits. 
many of these concepts are foreign to those outside the church. For example, this lack of sanctifying grace has practical consequences when confronting the present culture, which constantly assaults the Christian man. This is especially apparent when dealing with one masculine virtue that Senator Hawley, unfortunately, leaves unmentioned. Purity. Today's hypersexualized world is destroying American manhood. Without constant grace to fight the attacks of impurity, while inspiring love and obedience to God's sixth and ninth commandments, the effort to restore manhood is doomed. Sustained grace would also help American men understand the concept of the cross. The Church teaches that every Christian must carry the cross of persecution, misfortune, and defeat. The Senator recognizes the role of sacrifice, effort, and work in the life of a Christian. However, those acts have their reward by providing a more prosperous and honest life. Grace goes further and helps men understand the suffering caused by tragedy, injustice, and persecution that have no immediate reward. By understanding and loving the cross, men learn to suffer as Christ did. The Church teaches the redemptive value of these sufferings that help form character and mold men capable of great heroism. All society benefits from embracing suffering which imparts a willingness to sacrifice for others. When the cross marks all society, the sublime perfume of the spirit of abnegation permeates families, communities, economy, art, and thought, thus giving value, meaning, and beauty to all things human. The final element to restore manhood is Catholic unity. Senator Hawley's solutions concentrate on the imperative need for men to discipline themselves and thus impact the lives of others through good example. Such views reflect a theological vision based on individual salvation and justification. Each man works out his path to God hoping that others will be edified. Thus, his designations of man as warrior, builder, priest, and king all tend to be framed in an individual context. Man's role as priest is to be an individual spark of the divine that illuminates the darkness. He builds as a means of avoiding dependency upon government and thus achieves freedom. The warrior is told to confront the evils of his life, especially pride. The man's role as king is focused on personal control over the passions, a manifestation of self-rule. This man does not unite with the actions of others, but merely figures as a beacon of individual virtue in a vast sea of iniquity. Such action may give rise to personal battles, but not a much-needed counter-revolution. For the Catholic, 
The church is the mystical body of Christ, in which all members' actions become intertwined. Like a single body, every part is influenced by the virtues and vices of others. The Catholic doctrine of the communion of saints holds that all church members are bound together. The faithful on earth, the souls in purgatory, and the saints in heaven form an organic unity of the same mystical body under Christ as its head. There is constant interchange of supernatural offices. Thus, men can call upon the angels and saints for aid. Any act of virtue of one has a beneficial impact on all of society. There is an effort to facilitate and promote virtue everywhere because it benefits the whole, not only the individual. When framed in this manner, life on earth takes on the character of a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The church naturally tends to be an organized center of the general fight against evil, not an isolated point of resistance. Thus, her glorious title in this life the Church Militant. Senator Hawley does a great service to the nation by forcing the subject of manhood into the public arena. He hit his target. The left has reacted with vitriol and outrage that someone might dare challenge the woke narrative of toxic masculinity. The senior senator from Missouri displayed admirable courage and sparked a crucial debate. His book took manhood to write. However, it is only a starting point that needs to be broadened and taken to the end because the nation has a right to the full solution. The fight for manhood in America is too important a battle to come up short. As admirable as Senator Hawley's new book may be, there are other resources that men who wish to restore masculinity can profitably use. In 2019, Mr. Edwin Benson discussed one of them in his essay, A Catholic Manual for Men About the Way to Destroy Toxic Masculinity. Modern media make much of a concept called toxic masculinity. Many commentators have dealt with this pernicious idea and its damage to men in today's society. Helping young men overcome the pull of toxic masculinity is the unspoken purpose of a new book called Manual for Men. Its principal author is the recently retired Bishop of Phoenix, the Most Reverend Thomas J. Olmsted. For those unfamiliar with the idea behind toxic masculinity, author John Horvath II explains the concept in this way, quote, The sexual revolution created, cultivated, and nurtured a man-monster. A whole culture has been involved in making sure that these men behave the way many are now doing. The media have celebrated the destruction of the traditional notions of what a man should be. This effort has created a crazy, mixed-up creature. 
Now the Frankenstein's creators have turned upon him and condemned him, hanging a sign around his neck with the words Toxic Masculinity scribbled in bright pink. Media, entertainment, and academia everywhere reinforce a portrait of this man-monster. They have imposed models of what men, especially young men, must be. Many of today's men have obliged by shedding the constraints of traditional male behavior and embraced a sinful life of promiscuity, unrestraint, and contradiction. Unquote. Feminism has sown great confusion among young men, even those attempting to live virtuous lives. It is not clear what it means to be a man in a culture that appears to despise all that is appropriately masculine. This is now the third generation of a society conditioned by feminist ideology. Few young men have any appropriate masculine role models to light the way. A young man is beset by pornography, a hookup culture, and the loneliness that comes from trying to do right when all conspires against him. That young man, and anyone who is trying to help him, should read Manual for Men. Part one of the book is a reflection on Catholic manhood by Bishop Olmsted. Titled, Into the Breach, It Alone is Worth the Price of the Book. The bishop understands that being a Catholic man in this society is a battle, and he is urging young men to join the cause. Perhaps the best way to give a flavor of the reflection is to provide several quotations. From page 11. The church is, and always has been, a school that prepares us for spiritual battle where Christians are called to fight the good fight of the faith, see 1 Timothy 6.12, to put on the whole armor of God and to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, see Ephesians 6.11. From page 18, Herein lies the fullness of masculinity. Each Catholic man must be prepared to give himself completely, to charge into the breach, to engage in spiritual combat, to defend women, children, and others against the wickedness and snares of the devil. From pages 28 to 29. There is no shortcut to holiness, to being the great Catholic men we are called to be. There is no avoiding the age-old interior fight that each of us must engage. We must be tempted to say, when I get this threefold battle behind me, I can start living a life of holiness. But it is a lie. It is precisely in the course of this fight that we become holy. And from page 62. We need faith like that of our fathers who defended the children of previous generations and who gave up their own lives rather than abandon their faith in Christ. 
my sons and brothers, men of the church in the United States and beyond, we need you to step into the breach. Unquote. The rest of the book contains spiritual resources designed to help men reach the ideal that Bishop Olmsted so nobly laid out before them. There are short readings from Scripture, the Catechism, and papal documents. Examples from the lives of the saints highlight the virtues and characteristics found in the bishop's reflections. The icing on the cake, as it were, is a section devoted to prayers, devotions, and hymns. A set of rosary meditations incline the thoughts to spiritual warfare, as seen in this passage from the Meditation on the Nativity. Quote, Heaven's strategy to overthrow Satan's kingdom was brilliant in its humility. In his immense pride, the devil was taken by surprise. He could not understand, he could not appreciate, that God would humble himself this way for the sake of a weak and wayward human race. Unquote. The paragon of all fatherly virtues, St. Joseph, is featured prominently, as are the archangels St. Michael and St. Raphael. There is something of a tendency to overrepresent more modern church figures. While the quotes are well chosen, the book would be made stronger by appeals to doctors of the church, warrior saints, or more militant figures from the past. This is, nonetheless, not a book to be read once and put away. It is intended to rest on the nightstand. Its construction reflects that purpose. The covers are leather and flexible. The pages are solidly bound. The paper is of high quality, and notes and highlights do not bleed through to the next page. This book will help the young man who reads it to reaffirm his masculine role in life. Purchasing a copy of Manual for Men for a confused Catholic young man might even rise to the state of a spiritual work of mercy. So far, there is one word that has been absent from this discussion of Catholic masculinity. It is an important one. That word is chivalry. This word describes an attitude of self-sacrifice. Therefore, it is an uncommon word in a selfish age such as ours. Mr. Horvat discusses that uncommon but necessary element in his essay, Why Chivalry is the Catholic Solution to Toxic Masculinity. Toxic masculinity is one of those trendy expressions that is intentionally left vague and emotional so that it might wreak havoc on society. Once limited to women's studies departments, the term has broken out of its cage and now seems to be everywhere. In these Me Too times, everyone can claim to be a victim of toxic masculinity. For the most part, Toxic masculinity is a description of what modern men have become. It should not be a surprising development. This notion of masculinity is toxic. The sexual revolution created, cultivated, and nurtured a man monster. 
media, entertainment, and academia everywhere reinforce this monstrous portrait. They have imposed models of what men, especially young men, must be. This male model is disconnected from the traditional notion of family. He is sexually active in a hypersexualized world that enthusiastically encourages any consensual relationship without consequences. He is part of a hookup culture that caters to his most base instincts and abhors chastity. This male model is also disconnected from responsibility, especially those of family. He is immature infantile, and pleasure-driven. He is self-centered, given to seeking cheap thrills and risks that gratify his mediocre desires. He is the center of his little world, which might often be confined to his parents' basement. He is a bundle of unrestraint and instability. He gives in to his whims. The man-monster is shallow in his outlook, brutal in his manners, and violent in his habits. He can be vain as he seeks the ideal body image. Feminist ideologues have complicated this male model by adding contradictions. They insist that alpha males must also express their emotions and feelings. These men-monsters are now told to be a little less monster. He should not be afraid to be afraid. Thus, it should be no surprise that the outcome of this contradictory male model would be disastrous. The present male landscape is a mess. Men are committing more violent crimes, populating prisons, and abusing substances. Men are depressed and committing suicide. Everyone is now shouting that this model of masculinity is killing men. It's toxic. And it could not be otherwise. Men are receiving mixed signals in today's world. Their testosterone-driven bodies are told to suppress aggressive actions. They are encouraged to be sexually active yet are now accused of being predators. In short, they need to be a true man and are told they must be a wimp. The result of this latest rewrite of men has been a dismal failure. However, feminists are not satisfied with this male caricature, but now proclaim it is time to write masculinity off altogether as toxic. Eliminating toxic masculinity is the new goal. It aims not to make men a little less this or a little less that. It is to change man by questioning his nature. This involves a refusal to recognize the undeniable difference between men and women observed over the ages. The new gender police decree that all concepts of man are arbitrary social constructs that must be eliminated. Thus, any structures that reinforce traditional male roles or even the monster male they created must be ruthlessly destroyed from infancy to old age. No more toy soldiers. No more violent sports. 
no more anything hinting of male difference. The American Psychological Association, for example, just released guidelines to help men and boys deal with so-called traditional masculinity ideology that presumably hinders their full development. They must change beyond all male stereotypes and not be what they are. Quote, The three most destructive words that every man receives when he's a boy is when he's told to be a man, says author Joe Ehrman, an ex-football coach that challenges traditional notions of masculinity. Thus, the deconstructed male must not be tough or aggressive at all. He must be emotional. Men have always tended to externalize pain and stress while women internalize them. Now there must be safe spaces where men can learn to deal with their inner selves. It is not clear exactly what this new non-man would look like. However, it must be admitted that the detoxed male would look an awful lot like a female. However, the final goal is not making males effeminate. The deconstructed gender universe desires a postmodern world where nothing is defined. It is a world of self-created androgynous reality. It involves a total utopian freedom, whereby an individual can self-identify to be whatever the preferred pronoun wants. For this to happen, all social constructions and narratives of the past must be destroyed, male and female. They will be replaced with individual constructions of the preferred pronoun's choice or mood. Individuals can be whatever they want, except a traditional male or female that corresponds to reality. Thus, the elimination of toxic masculinity will prove itself toxic, since it will install a dark, hellish world of androgynous fantasy that will tolerate no opposition. It will be tyrannical and persecute all that is true, good, and beautiful. The problem of toxic masculinity is not new. When men are given over to their passions, it will always create toxic situations of savagery and barbarity. What is new is the depths to which postmodernity plunges men deeper into sin. The new solutions not only go against man's true nature, they annihilate it. It was the church that tamed the human passions and proposed models for men that elevated them to unimaginable heights. The church proposed chivalry, giving men an ideal to channel ill-regulated passions. That ideal would capture the imagination of countless men throughout history that persists even today. Moreover, the Church provides the means of grace which makes the practice of these high ideals possible. For the first time in history, 
Being a man meant admiring and striving for virtues such as mercy, courage, valor, chastity, fairness, protection of the weak and the poor. Being a man meant adopting an attitude of gentleness and graciousness to all women, a practice unknown to the ancient pagan world that often treated them as chattels. It introduced the idea of honor, service, and abnegation, even to the point of giving one's life. Chivalry enriched manliness immensely. It taught men to extend the scope of their manliness and become Catholic gentlemen. The modern cause of manliness would gain much today if it set the bar high by adopting chivalry as a model. That bar needs to be set high, especially for millennials that crave such challenges. Today's problem is not toxic masculinity that sets the bar even lower, but toxic postmodernity, where there is no bar at all. This concludes, True men are neither macho nor wimps, but those who use God's weapon to defend their families, churches, and communities. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.